Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and you're watching Red Lines. My guest today is Rene Gonzalez. He's a member of the Cuban Five and currently lives in Havana, Cuba. Welcome to Red Lines, Rene. Uh, thank you for inviting me and uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. I've been following you on the uh, social uh, media for a while, but that's the first time uh, we are able to talk. So I'm glad I'm to be talking to you. I'm very honored by that and excited for this conversation. I wanted to start by talking about the situation in Cuba right now. Last week it was announced Cuba will begin testing its own, quote, sovereign COVID-19 vaccine. How are Cubans responding to this news and to the experience of the pandemic in general? Well, as, as you might know, we've been able to keep the pandemic under control. It's a, it's a hard work. It requires a lot of organization, discipline, and in the middle of our problems, uh, we've been able so far to, to prevent the pandemic to spread and to become uh, a, a big problem for our society. But, but anyways, it's, it's hitting hard like everywhere else. And in the middle of this uh, fight uh, to prevent uh, the pandemic, to, to, I mean, to, to defend the health of our people, uh, our scientists have uh, developed this uh, vaccine. Uh, well, everybody here is very proud of it. We are proud of, of the capacity of our scientists, of their, their commitment. Uh, they are very human, uh, and they approach their work with uh, with uh, real concern for for their people's lives. And uh, the Cuban people is very happy to hear that we are among the first countries in the world that which are developing the, the vaccine. So far, it's, uh, it's, it's starting to be tested. Uh, the tests are going well. And we hope that uh, sooner than later, we are, will be able to, to uh, vaccinate our population and, and you know, uh, overcome this uh, serious uh, threat to the whole humanity that we are facing now. And how is the fact that Cuba has been cut off from the international medical system for decades due to the U.S. blockade uniquely positioned it to fight coronavirus? Well, I don't know whether to say that, that Cuba has been cut off from the international medical system. Uh, it's, it's more complex than that uh, because uh, the Cuban scientists they have developed uh, close ties to the scientific community all over the world, including the United States. It's, uh, it's interesting because uh, while the U.S. government is uh, trying to, to strangle us, is trying to prevent us to have access to any technology, uh, they, um, the U.S. scientists, they, they acknowledge uh, the, the scientific achievements of Cuba, and, uh, and they come and have ties with our, our scientists and they, uh, they seem to go over uh, the politics of the blockades. And so far, uh, we have been able to, to have ties with the scientific community in general. But of course, uh, the blockade uh, impairs uh, the, uh, the acquisition of, of technologies that we need to, to work. So it's, it's a very complex fight uh, which, which uh, goes all over the, the over any other area of our development. It's not only related to, to scientific uh, work, but as you know, uh, for us to develop any technology uh, or any 
uh, economic capacity is always a fight against the blockade. But uh, as, as I told you, uh, our scientists are, are well prepared. They have uh, ties to, to the rest of the scientific community in the world. And I assume that uh, somehow that capacity to link with other people all, all over the world has uh, improved our scientific capacity and our possibilities to develop uh, a vaccine like this. I wanted to ask you about your very unique experience as a member of La Red Avispa, or the WASP network in English. Viewers might be more familiar with your story today because a recent Netflix film actually documented your story as a Cuban agent working in Miami to monitor right-wing terrorist groups in the 1990s. You were played by actor Edgar Ramirez. Usted es Olga Salanueva, la esposa de René González. Ay, no me vaya a decir que le pasó algo. Él ha traicionado. Se robó un avión, voló por debajo de nuestros radares y aterrizó en una base militar en Miami. Why did you defect, son? In Cuba, everything is short. Electricity, food. Necesitamos pilotos como tú. Ya dentro de la organización hemos formado un grupo de élite. En la red avispa. Did you see this film? And if so, what was your reaction to it? I saw the film uh, and I liked it. Uh, I was uh, surprised by, by the way Edgar Ramirez uh, played my, my character uh, because I, I didn't have any contact with him. We don't know each other personally. And uh, he was able to play my character, I would say, uh, very accurately. Uh, even my demeanor, the, the, the issues that we had to face, uh, all the ordeal of uh, being away from my family, uh, even the meetings with uh, Gerardo, the character that is played with uh, by, by Gael, uh, I mean, the, the environment, uh, everything resembled my real experience. And I was very, very presently surprised by how well he did the his job. I don't know whether he may, may have seen a video of myself or something. But uh, in my opinion, the main, the main uh, achievement of the movie is that it exposes a history of terrorism against Cuba, which has been denied to the, to the general knowledge. And all of a sudden, somebody from the United States, from Europe, who has a very uh, cliche view of uh, Cuba and, and the Cuban issue uh, uh, would discover a, a, a story which they didn't know about. So no wonder uh, right now in Miami they are trying to go after Netflix uh, through a stupid uh, legal suit to make them retract. Uh, I mean, they, are, they are very worried there. They are uh, very uh, worried because they know that this is a story i mean in my opinion after elian this is the the second time where the real nature of the miami anti-castro industry is exposed to the world during the elian crisis they did it themselves they exposed themselves to the uh to the whole world by 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 their real nature when they try to uh, 
kidnap a boy from his father and keep it there. And uh, now the movie is, is another instance where uh, the real nature of the anti-Cuba uh, terrorist groups in Miami is exposed to the rest of the, of the world. And in my opinion, that's a virtue of the movie. Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised myself. I, I was just hosting the director and screenwriter Oliver Stone on this program, and he talked about how because of the new age of Netflix television and Netflix films, he thought it would actually be more difficult to make human stories and stories that are critical of U.S. foreign policy. But I, I actually think... The WASP network was a welcome outlier to that to that problem we're facing now because it did really highlight the issues and the, and the criminality of, of U.S. policy and support for these right-wing terror networks that were supporting the or I'm sorry attacking the tourism industry in Cuba. But you're telling me that they didn't consult you for the film at all. No, no, we didn't have to do anything with the film. Uh, they did the, their work. I, as I know, as far as I know, they contacted the Cuban authorities uh, so they could give them the production services here. And they did their work. And in my opinion, it's, it's better that way. Because I don't want it to be my movie. I'd rather see a movie made by somebody who is not part of, of, the, of the problem, of the issue. Somebody from Europe with his own views, uh, if you saw the movie, uh, you can see he's not necessarily a Cuban sympathizer or a communist. Uh, but in my opinion, uh, from his point of view, he did a, a, an honest work, and that's what matters. Uh, and that's why, and this is important, everything that happens, in, that appears in the movie is true. I mean, the drug dealings, the terrorist acts, everything is true. Nothing is uh, made up. So in, in my opinion, that's the, the real value of, uh, of the movie. What was it like for you during this period when you were working in Miami? What, what was the most difficult aspect of your job? Was it fear of being discovered by these very dangerous individuals in Miami? Was it being separated from your family, and I believe your wife not even necessarily knowing that you were not a defector, but you were there still fighting for the Cuban Revolution. It's, it's, it's a very difficult task. Uh, for, for once, uh, having to play somebody you are not is, is really hard. Yeah, I believe it might even take a toll on you. Uh, fortunately, uh, those people in Miami, they are really easy to fool because uh, all you have to do is tell them everything bad about you and they believe everything you, you tell them. So that, that's, that helps. But of course, being away from my family, is, it was hard. Uh, uh, you don't have time to, to fear whether you're going to be discovered or not because if you fear too much about that, you don't do what, what you have to do. Uh, but it is it's hard to see uh, how some people can enjoy the difficulties that Cuba is going through because of the special period and see how those people not, not only enjoy it, but they try to increase the suffering of your country. And then you have to uh, behave like you are one of them 
and you have to celebrate things that they celebrate, and really, it really is it's really hard. Uh, but you know, it's, it's you have to do it. Uh, you know what is at, at stake, and I believe that that uh, sense of purpose is what what allows uh, you to to do what you have to do and go ahead with it. Yeah, it's a situation I don't think most people in the world could ever imagine themselves in and, and dealing with. It's interesting, though, because the FBI actually ended up complimenting your spycraft and saying that the operation run by the WASP network was largely successful. What kind of techniques, if you can share any, did you use during that period, and did the film really portray it accurately? Well, we needed. We used the, the same technique that that our scientists and our doctors use, which is the human resource, human intelligence. We are not. Uh, we are not a developed country. We don't have those uh, sophisticated uh, uh, machines that the CIA or maybe the Mossad use. Uh, it's only the will of the people. Uh, facing the threat of some other people who wants to do damage to your people, uh, what pushes you and and uh, and probably just uh, I mean uh, Fidel uh, from 1959 when he came to power he he understood that the only resource that Cuba had was the ingenuity and intelligence of his own people and their heart. And he did everything in his power to develop that resources. And that's it. It's, it's, it's a matter of patriotism, of, of using your, uh, your abilities as a human being, uh, probably the education that you received, uh, and some training, but, but that's it. We don't have, we didn't have anything else. How did you actually make the decision to participate in this, to be the man who's going to go to Miami, pretend to defect, embed yourself in this network of, of very terrifying right-wing terrorists, and then still work and, and help the cause back home? Well, it, it wasn't my decision, I would tell you. Somebody approached me and asked me for it. <laughs> and I said right away, I said, yes, of course. As a matter of fact, when I was approached, the conference here, they told me that if, if I didn't want to do it, it was okay, that uh, they didn't put any pressure on me. The, they, they knew the risk, of course. And, and this is something that if you do it, you have to be voluntary. It, 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 it cannot be because you feel any pressure or uh, peer pressure or whatever. So, but but, but I, will, I grew up in Cuba and, and I, uh, when I, since I was a kid, I, I lived through the, the terrorist actions from the Miami groups against Cuba. I went to, to the Plaza de la Revolución to, to say farewell to the, the, the people who died on the Cubana airliner, which was shot down by a bomb in 1976. So for me, and for, I believe for my generation, it was natural to, to step forward, forward and accept the the mission. And as, as soon as I was told, I just said, okay, I have to do it. Let's go. And, and that was it. Uh, 
And once you have the decision, well, you have to go, go, go ahead and do the best you can. Well, the film certainly portrays you as the hero of the story. In what way... Go on. No, no, go ahead. I was going to ask, in what ways has U.S. policy toward Cuba changed since you were in Miami? At that point, they were targeting the tourist networks with very clear terroristic tactics. But today, it, it seems to be more clandestine. Well, the, the, the policies of the U.S. against Cuba uh, are, are most or less, more or less the same throughout the years. Uh, of course, we have two different approaches. Uh, sometimes some Republicans, Republicans like, let's say, Reagan or Bush, they come with a tougher approach, then comes uh, usually a Democrat with a softer approach. But it doesn't change the policies of, of the USA against Cuba. Uh, what, what changes usually is uh, the response of these people in Miami to the, to the, uh, the reality that they find in the, in the, in the ground. And, and for example, on the, on the 60s, uh, the CIA funded directly all those terrorists. They, the CIA not only funded them, they, they created them. They were, the people that I knew in Miami in the 90s, they were young people on the 60s. And they were recruited by the CIA. They were trained on terrorism, uh, sabotage, all kind of, of, of activity, clandestine activities to destroy the Cuban revolution. And then they became uh, businessmen in Miami. They became part of the Miami upper class. But uh, deep down, they were the same terrorists that were trained by the CIA in the 60s. What changed wasn't the, the people. It changed, the situation changed. In the 50s, in the 60s, uh, the CIA funded them directly until, until they, uh, uh, they were defeated. Uh, so they had to retreat and resorted to, to terrorism throughout the 70s and the 80s, but uh, more or less uh, uh, hidden, uh, more uh, now and then. It wasn't that, uh, that uh, as intense as it had been in the 60s. But then when the, when the 90s uh, came and the Soviet Union collapsed, I mean, those days, the, the same people uh, saw the opportunity to destroy the Cuban Revolution by attacking and committing terrorism against uh, the tourism industry. And that's, that's why the, the terrorism in their uh, worst uh, form surfaced again on the 90s. But they were again defeated. Uh, even though we were arrested in 1998, uh, the Cuban uh, intelligence service and the Cuban people had uh, inflicted uh, enough losses to them and, and enough defeats that they couldn't keep doing that anymore. Not to forget that those people from the 60s were already elderly. And, you know, now you have some remains of those people. So after uh, the, after the uh, the 2002, 2003, they, they have uh, used a, a different approach, which is trying to uh, join 
all of the the policies of the U.S. government against Cuba and become uh, the mouthpiece of uh, the U.S. government government's policies. But at the end, they are the same people and they have the same the same goals that those young guys who were trained by the CIA in the 60s. And do you believe the Obama administration's Cuba thought was genuine or was the ultimate goal and policy of regime change still the same? Some would point to the fact that USAID launched the Zunzuneo program, a secret Twitter-like app which was meant to stir unrest in Cuba under Obama. Well, uh, I, I would say that Probably from Obama, Obama's point of view, it was genuine. <laughs> but but the goal is the same. Uh, throughout these years, we have uh, faced a, a, a tough approach and a soft approach by presidents who uh, are looking for the same goal, which is uh, to uh, control uh, the Cuban economy again. And Obama was just a soft approach. What happens is that, in our opinion, uh, the soft approach at least is more uh, coherent with international law, with civilized uh, relationship between two countries. And that's why, that's why we usually uh, welcome uh, more the soft approach. But. We, we don't fool ourselves. We know that the goal is the same. But again, uh, you cannot change the, the nature of the U.S. government. And you cannot change who they represent. And, uh, and you cannot change their goals. But you can hope for them to try to achieve the same goals throughout a more uh, uh, civilized approach, to say it one way. And that's why we open our, uh, our, our country to <coughs> the approach that Obama took uh, when, he, when he came to power. Because it's more civilized. I mean, they are always, always going uh, to want to change our, our ways. They always will want to, to impose their will on us. But we say, well, you, you want to do it. Okay, let's, let's just compete in a civilized environment, and let's see who is uh, right. And that's why we welcome more the Obama approach. The approach by people like Reagan, <coughs> like Trump, like uh, Bush, is just uh, close to fascism. It's a way of looking at the world like Hitler did. And we, of course, resent that, and we don't have anything to do with that. Under Presidents Obama and Trump, the U.S. really focused its shift to what it calls its own backyard in the Monroeist sense, ratcheting up pressure on left-wing Latin American governments from Honduras to now Bolivia. What commonalities do you see between current U.S. policy on Venezuela specifically and the Cuba policy you fought against, especially considering news of the failed invasion of Venezuela by U.S. mercenaries and Venezuelan deserters earlier this year? Well, uh, the, the U.S. government is facing a difficult uh, 
choices. Uh, imperialism is, is retreating. Uh, and that's the, 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 the trend. Although, of course, <coughs> history takes uh, longer than we wish, but uh, after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, the U.S. government, they believed that they would reign, that, that they would have, let's say, uh, another third range uh, during a, a thousand years. <coughs> and it's not only, uh, it's not like that anymore. So they are, they have to, to, to acknowledge that the world is changing, that we are moving to a, to a, a multilateral world, and that inevitably their uh, influence and their, their hegemony is going to be uh, challenged by different actors all over the world. What they are doing is trying to retreat to the original uh, source of their uh, surplus value, which was Latin America. And, uh, and deep down, they acknowledge that, they, that probably the last trench that they are going, going to have to defend is their control of Latin American resources. But because all over the world, all over the rest of the world, new actors are uh, influencing the, the history. Uh, and that's why they uh, focus back into Latin America. Uh, but, but they have never forgotten about Latin America. I mean, again, they, are, they might have, might have uh, changed the approach, but, but they, they have never forgotten about Latin America. Even during Obama, uh, the Obama administration, don't forget the coup d'etat in Honduras. Don't forget that the Obama was the guy who declared uh, Venezuela a clear and present danger. So that's nothing new. But of course, uh, with a guy like Trump, who is a fascist, I don't say see another word for him, uh, these policies against Latin America uh, take a more aggressive approach. And that's what, what we are seeing now. My opinion, uh, Trump's, uh, Trump's uh, father figure is uh, Ronald Reagan. And, and he believed uh, deep down that he, he might leave the, the legacy of, uh, of ending socialism in Latin America. And, and he's, he's into that uh, goal. He's, he's, he's uh, doing whatever he can to, to, to achieve that. And of course, he recognizes that the Venezuelan economy somehow has been the, the, the economic support of, the, of all these mechanisms that, uh, that we created in Latin America when Chavez and Fidel and some other people created the Alma Group. And, and he knows what he's doing. But of course, we also know what we are doing. And, and I believe that the Venezuelan people uh, uh, will be able to withstand uh, this, uh, this uh, policy of aggression. And, uh, and somehow, someday we're going to go back and, and rebuild the ALBA in Latin America and, and go after the destiny of, that we deserve. Yeah, much of the Republican Party convention this week is focused an attack on socialism, and they had uh, the lieutenant governor of Florida come out, who's a 
fam a family, a Cuban family coming out to say that socialism fails and this is somehow what the Democrats want to bring to the United States even though the Democrats basically represent a lighter Republican Party platform. It's a very interesting time in this country in that regard. I'm wondering though, how do you see the region changing in a material sense? You mentioned the emergence of a multipolar world. What does that look like in Cuba and even in Latin America and the Caribbean as a whole? Well, first, we have to, to understand that Latin America is, is changing since, uh, probably since a century ago. Uh, it's been a long process. And the people of Latin America, uh, well, maybe starting with the Mexican Revolution, later Sandino, and so on, Guatemala, we, we always have been looking for uh, uh, our common destiny. As, as a family, as, as, as the family of nations that Bolivar sought for us. But of course, there's always been the interference of U.S. imperialism and the oligarchies on, on, on our countries, which have the same goal of keeping our, uh, our countries under their, their oppression. But the trend, the historical trend, is towards uh, uh, America, Latin America building its, its, own, its, its own family of nations. It doesn't matter whether they can delay, delay the leader or not, but historically speaking, that's the goal. And if you look at Latin America, let's say when the, the Cuban Revolution came, came about, or you look at Latin America 40 years ago and you see it now, you can see how we have changed. And we are going to be, uh, keep changing. I mean, they cannot prevent that. History cannot be prevented. And we have, as a continent, a destiny to fulfill. And we are going to do it. And uh, probably they might push back, they might, they might push us back a little because they, they, they put a dictator here or they kill a president there. Uh, but, but, History uh, has a way of, of, of moving forward, which cannot be uh, prevented by the will of, of, of a power. It doesn't matter how powerful it is. And as, as the power of the, of the U.S. government uh, decays, I mean, the will of the Latin American people to move forward is going to increase. And uh, I, I hope and, and, and I might not see it, but I hope that uh, someday uh, Latin America is going to meet that destiny that we have been fighting uh, for for so long. I hope so too. And I'm just to close, I'm wondering, the United States is very threatened by the rise of Russia and China, even though Russia is no longer the Soviet Union it still challenges U.S. hegemony on the global stage. So how, how do you see the support from Russia and China in places such as Cuba? Well, we don't have the, the ideological ties that we had before, but, but we don't need that. Uh, I mean, just, just by existing as a counterbalance, to the hegemony of, uh, of imperialism, 
uh, Russia and China are doing a big, a big favor to history. Uh, and that's how it should be. I mean, I, I, we don't need to to be pro-Russian or pro-Chinese or pro-whatever. What matters is that different countries in different regions of the world are uh, exercising uh, enough balancing power so as to prevent the, the uh, imperialist uh, ambitions from overcoming the rest of the world. Uh, Jose Marti, or, or national hero, he, he was uh, talking about Cuban independence. He, he said that, uh, that by fighting for, uh, for the independence of Cuba, he also was fighting for the balance of the world because he saw Cuba as a barrier between the ambitions of the U.S. imperialism and the rest of Latin America. And uh, it's, it's interesting, but uh, still Cuba is uh, playing that role. And when we have uh, relationships with different countries of the world uh, based on, on, the, on, so on the respect for each other, and, uh, and we can show that those relations uh, uh, are benefit for benefit everybody. Uh, that's playing a role in terms of of, uh, of opening up for different more more people to do the same and to understand that no matter how much powerful economically the U.S. is, which is uh, something that cannot be denied. Uh, the more you relate to different actors with full sovereignty, with full uh, capacity to decide for yourself, the better for yourself, for yourself, and for the rest of the world. And that's what the relationship between China and, uh, and, and Russia, with Cuba, with Venezuela, with Iran, uh, are showing. And that's what uh, makes them so nervous about it. Absolutely. You mentioned international law earlier. It seems that just a basic commitment to these tenets of national sovereignty, self-determination, and territorial integrity, which Russia and China support, is really something which threatens the United States. But uh, Rene Gonzalez, I'm so honored and just so happy to have the chance to speak with you today. It's, it's a big pleasure for us at the Gray Zone to host you, and I just want to thank you so much for making time to speak with me. Uh, thanks to you, and again, it was a pleasure to see you for the first time and to talk to you. I hope it's not the last. Hopefully next time in Havana. Ah, oh, that would be great.